0: pretty safe to say data plays a really important role in population health. But what does that even mean? There's bajillions of data points being collected around the place and in return, gajillion reports and insights being shot back to end users who might be clinicians, policymakers, managers, and decision makers. So population health, how much does health actually relate to that? Are there other factors that contribute to the overall health of a population? And how can data help inform some of the decisions to shape healthier communities? And how do we go from just capturing data to really making some good of it all and translate it back into insights that end users really understand and need? Well, with me today are three guests joining from different parts of the world, all from the company Civica, who's a global organization with over 30 years of experience in delivering improved outcomes for public services around the world. In this discussion, we're talking about big data, population health management, machine learning, artificial intelligence, the cloud, and a lot more too. Collaboration starts with the conversation team health tech. Let's make it happen.
1: Welcome to Talking Health Tech with Peter Burge, a podcast featuring conversations with key players and influencers to promote innovation and collaboration for better healthcare enabled by technology.
0: With me today is Tracy Cotterall, John Doran, and Judith Boskett from Civica. Judith is sales director for Civica in Australia and New Zealand, and's got a long experience in healthcare sales based in Australia. John Doran is cost consultant at Civica, normally based in the UK, but joining us today from Singapore. And Tracy Cottrell is Managing Director, Population Health Intelligence at Civica, based in the UK. John, Tracy, and Judith, how are you? Really good, thanks. Yep. Good, thanks for joining. So, look, it's great that we've been able to pull people from different parts of the world, albeit with a few technical hurdles to get us here. So, it's great that we've worked that out to be able to have this conversation today. But help set the scene for me. Tell us a bit about each of you. Let's go with Tracy first, and then John, and then Judith.
1: Hi everybody, I'm Tracy Cottrell. I joined Civica about a year ago now as the Managing Director of the Population Health Intelligence Business Unit. We basically provide the public sector with financial support around costing and, and capturing activity and data and really now we're building that into population health tools. My background is eight years as a Chief Finance Officer in the NHS so I'm um, really excited about the things that we're able to do now with, with the data.
0: Amazing. Can't wait to learn more. And
2: John? Hi, Pete. Uh, yes, yeah, so my name is John Doran. I'm the head of solution strategy for the business unit that Tracy heads up. So by background, I am a healthcare costing accountant. So I've been doing that for just over 10 years. And that's given me kind of a lot of hands on experience with these data sets originally producing the, the costing models and supporting hospitals to do that, but also then moving more into the systems and tools and products that then produce that data, but also mine that data for various different insights. And that's how I've then moved into the solutions strategy position position working really closely with Tracy we're looking at ways that we can use innovative technologies to really drive the value from the data that we produce Um, and and as Tracy says very much with a population health angle at the moment. Perfect, good one and Judith?
3: Okay, so I'm Judith Boskett, and I've been with Silica since the middle of last year. And I've been in healthcare sales for over 25 years now in Australia. And so, my background's been with companies like Kimberly Clark and Argel. So, yeah, I'm leading the health BU in Australia um, in this um, Costmaster and Orem space, I'm working very closely with John and with Tracy, who's obviously leading from the UK perspective. So yeah, really looking forward to this podcast, and opportunity to tell everybody about, about Civica and, and what we do.
0: Yeah, love it. Look, that's a nice segue in to learn a bit more. For those that don't know Civica, obviously stretching across different parts of the world, tell us a bit more about the work that you do here and abroad.
3: Okay. So for those who are not, I guess, familiar with Civica, we were established in 2001 and we've grown to become one of the UK's largest software companies and a global leader in software for the public service. We essentially help organizations around the world to transform the way that they work and deliver mission critical services. We provide expertise and services to work in partnership with more than 4,000 UK organizations in the UK and also across Ireland, Australia, New Zealand, um, Singapore, Canada, and the US. We have over 5,500 staff globally. And this large global sort of resource pool, especially software expertise, ensures we are a secure and trusted solution partner. The private health insurance BU, whilst it's headed up in the UK, provides services across health internationally. And within Australia, the private health insurance our proprietary product uh, insurer is the transactional software that supports more than 6 million private health insurance members in Australia. So in Australia, we've got around 1,100 staff supporting services in libraries, education, justice services, local government, and most importantly, health. And our health and care team supports the aged and disability sectors, hospitals, and as I said, private insurance. So that's kind of what we, that's where we're at in Australia. So perhaps, Tracy, over to you.
1: Yeah, so the UK part that, that we're looking to, to bring into the Australian market now is very much around the data insights that John mentioned. You know, we've got this wealth of information health services across the world have been collecting so much data for years and years and years but they've never really been able to leverage it so that's really what what we're about now in, in the UK space and, and it's something Civic has really keen to move in uh, and take full advantage of all the advances in technology to really deliver solutions to, to customers globally.
2: Yeah, I think, I think it, it, it's a really exciting time at the moment, uh, isn't it, Tracy, in terms of the tools that are now becoming available but also viable for public sector organisations to use, you know, that they're no longer out of reach, H- help this really rich data that the health sector, which which probably has the best data, I would say, of any governmental sector, the health data set are phenomenal and well-established. We can really start extracting the value, and I think within the health division, within civica, I think our, our systems are in the process of, of pivoting from help to capture and organise data to... To drive value from those systems, so it's no longer about just inputting data into clinical systems or, or financial systems just to, to store that data and record it. It's also about saying what can we do with that data once it's captured that helps decision makers, whether they be clinical or managerial, to really um, you know ha- have better tools at their fingertips when they're making those calls on the ground when they're looking at strategic direction of organisations. that's very much the, the direction I, I know our, our BU in, in, in PHI, Tracy, isn't it? it's, very, it's very much kind of heading that way.
0: Yeah,
1: it, it's about looking at the, the use of resources to achieve better patient outcomes, which essentially is population health. I, I think we differentiate our BU from other BUs in, in Civica in saying that that we're looking at using the data for operational and management decisions A lot of systems are out there supporting clinicians in making clinical decisions, Mm. and that's great. But how do you then marry that up to make the right strategic transformational decisions across an organisation that still deliver that clinical benefit on on the individual patient level? And that's what we're about, really, is bringing that big data in to help managers make operational decisions that drive best value from the resources.
0: So if I've understood correctly, it sounds like, you know, as an operational or a business tool that's been utilized for selling to be able to capture data and input information, I guess, around the financial side, particularly in the healthcare space. But obviously in doing that, you're building up such a rich data set and insights and knowledge that can give back. And that's something, you know, I know you mentioned that there's very much data tools for clinicians and, and all of that. But I know from a clinician's perspective, that's one of the biggest bugbears is why, why do I need to input so much information and I get nothing back in return, all I'm doing is feeding the beast kind of thing. Whereas, and I guess it sounds like on the same side of thing is that, you know, there's, it's not just inputting information to be able to serve somebody else to look at the data in a nice spreadsheet. It's actually then informing decisions back the other way to help whether it's drive efficiency or improve outcomes. Have I got that about right?
1: Yeah, I think historically, and and being a CFO in a trust that's such familiar territory, why do you want all this information? Why have we got to fill in all this data, especially around national cost collection, which has been going for a really long time in the NHS? The problem has always been there's so much data that comes back. Everybody puts in billions of Mm artefacts of data between them. Well, then you get billions of artefacts of data back. How do you do anything with that yeah. that's meaningful? Where, How do you know where to look? And the tools that we've got now in, in the, the digital space are changing that conversation and really enabling us to use data to inform rather than just to collect it for Um, So so historically, you've collected all this data. If you know what question to ask, you've got the data there to go and look and find it. The data now tells you what questions to ask because we've got the tools to do that.
0: That's a good way to put it. You mentioned population health, Tracy. So when it comes to population health, give me some examples here. You know, it it helps to inform decision making. Why is it important to collect and analyse population health data?
1: For me, there's a fundamental question of what do people mean by population health in the first instance. There's a, there's a generic understanding, but everybody that you speak to will have a slightly different perspective on that. You know, that there's an overarching view that we want everybody to live healthier lives, to live longer, to live longer without disease. But when you're working with an organisation, they'll have a much more focused and narrow view. They've still got that overarching view, but they can't deal with the whole population in one go. So they'll pick different elements of it. So everybody you talk to will have a different approach to population health management in their space and and it'll be based on the local need, the local population and what they're seeing in in their areas. Which cohorts are they focusing on because that's going to drive the maximum benefit in, in their geography and that varies because different demographics have different needs. So the, the digital solutions that we come with, they've got to be flexible to meet those varying needs. So it comes back to the point, we need to collect all of the data so everyone can access it, but people need the flexibility to be able to choose which is most relevant to them at that point in time. And actually, when they're moving down a route, they might find they need something else as well. So if all that data is collected, it's all available to use in, in an integrated way. So what we've tried to do is have a platform that that focuses on holding all the the pertinent data in without dictating a use case for it, allowing each area to come up with their own use case and adapt the data accordingly to what they need. I think there is a commonality in those use cases and we've tried to build our, our data around those commonalities around the types of data that are needed and how that's structured because if you have a free-for-all it, it gets too complex and you don't actually you get back to the point of billions of bits of data and, and nobody knows how to look at it so we have to have some structure to it but we want to keep it as open as we possibly can to bring in as, as, as many data, data sets as possible. The other factor in this is about concentrating on whole populations, not just the people that are sick right now. That That's the beauty of, of collecting so much information is you can start to understand what's around the corner, not just who's presenting with disease now, but who is storing up problems for the future, etc.
2: I I I think that kind of leads really nicely into what I was thinking when you asked, why is it important to collect population health type data? And I think Tracy's touched on it there with that point around as much about who you don't see as as who you do see. I think the reason why it's important is it allows the focus of an organisation to be external rather than internal, to be on the population it serves rather than its own performance. So I think often healthcare organisations have had to focus on their own performance and set KPIs and benchmarks within the activities they do. Thank you. The cat but if you think about, like Tracy said, it, it, it's all about what's good for the patient, what's good for the people whom it serves. Those benchmarks are KPIs that are proxies for a good outcome for the population. So, if, you know, using my UK experience, we have a four-hour waiting target for a We have an 18-week referral to treatment target for cancer patients. And, and, and organisations then become, you know, as soon as you measure it, people then become focused on that measure. But mm. they're in internal measures. What population health management does is it uses much broader data, from outside the organization to pivot the organization's focus and then that becomes more on well what behaviors what what services what products do we need to have that are going to best serve the people that we serve uh, their kind of outcomes of the population and, and as Tracy says that one of the reasons why that's important is because not everybody comes through the door however there's are still stakeholders there's still people for whom the health system needs to work and then that it, it fills in those blind spots so I think you know it is wide it is varied but it's a really important shift, I think, moving towards population health management rather than organisational management.
0: Mm, it sounds like a good a good mix between allowing that flexibility to be able to measure as required, but at the same time, giving some guardrails to be able to have a breadth of, of image. Sorry, Tracy, you were about to mention something as well. Uh,
1: yeah. So just expanding on that point a little bit that you, you just summarised there, it's estimated that healthcare only accounts for about 20% of a person's health outcomes. So when we talk about broader data sets, what we're actually talking about are things that are uh, the wider determinants of health, other things that that have a massive impact on people's health and well-being and, and can cause really poor outcomes, housing, employment, education, environment. Crime. I was talking to one uh, chief operating officer and they'd done some analysis of people who had obesity issues and obviously the, the ongoing comorbidities that arise from that. And they were asking those people in that particular geography what was driving that, that obesity. They were trying to understand it. And the answer came back that it was crime, that, that people were too frightened to go outside. So we've really got to make those connections because actually the, there's such a big impact of different factors that affect people's life chances
0: yeah that's yeah. fascinating that's fascinating and bringing it back to home a little bit, Judith, understanding the needs in Australia, is this type of tool and requirement resonating with health systems here in Australia as well in terms of that need?
3: It is in that we've certainly seen a lot of interest in um, in the products that we're offering at the moment, where there, there are frustrations within, for instance, within New South Wales, within local health districts where they find it very difficult to actually break down costs. And as Tracy said, they've got the information, mm. but it's just a matter of like, well, how do we actually, pull out what the important points are so it's actually very difficult at the moment for instance for one local health district to compare its performance to another local health district based on precisely the same criteria because it's very difficult to actually get that information and be able to I guess triangulate it in you know in the right way to give you the results that you need.
2: Yeah I think Australia has a, a real opportunity though here in these kind of tools to be one of what to, to be an early adopter who can have early success while this field is still settling in exactly what it is and and, and there's a lot of variation in, in terms of what the definitions are what we can say and Tracy mentioned the kind of commonalities is it requires data it requires high digitization population health tools and and the decisions we can make from them I think will probably benefit urbanized areas over rural areas it's very difficult to overcome the challenges of geography um you know if somebody's in a remote area it, it, it's always going to take a long time to get them to a hospital if they have a heart attack for example you know that mm. the, the physical distances are what they are whereas in highly urbanized areas that's where there's a lot more opportunities to restructure the, the institutions and the physical environment to have better outcomes to be more geared towards the way we live in in the 21st century rather than the 20th century as a lot of these systems would, were designed for yeah. and as i say Australia, uh, given its size, given its its population kind of density and, and the uh, the concentrations of populations that it has, the fact that it's a very developed economy, has a very developed healthcare system, and is already highly digitized, I, I think there's there's a lot of opportunity there for Australian states and territories and and the health systems within them to adopt these tools and practices and and, and make some early headway. Yeah.
1: I think there's an appetite for it as well. You know, the people that we speak to in the Australian health leadership, there is absolutely an appetite to deliver value-based healthcare. It is becoming more globally understood. It's a buzzword in all health economies, but there's a real interest in moving the dial on this in Australia. That's what we're seeing, I think.
0: Well, yeah. t- tell us a bit more then about the this desire for value-based care. It does get thrown around Occasionally if you if you're deep in the in the weeds, sometimes you know what it's about. We've got a broad audience when it comes to this podcast. Tell us a bit about value based care and how these types of insights might then help Shape what that looks like.
1: Yep. So, um, th- this is something that, that John said when we were thinking about uh, the, the structure of this last week. And that's a stitch in time saves nine. You know, real success is often the actions that avoid healthcare in- interventions. So it's about helping people make lifestyle changes. What interventions and treatments can we do now that help contain disease and stop it escalating? What's to stop it being that triple heart bypass in five years' time? What can we do now? Those sort of themes are prevalent in this space. We really want to ensure also that we're improving the outcomes all round for individuals, communities and the healthcare providers. You can't just have a micro view on this. We've got to think about the macro view that the clinicians are obviously dealing at at the micro level with the patient in front of them, but the management and strategic decisions have to be more macro. We captured activity about data that's happened in, in great detail, about, but what about the wild people? How are we capturing that data? How do we know that the 45-year-old who hasn't seen a GP for a decade, but they've gradually been gaining weight, what are we doing to capture that information? Their jobs are being, being more stressful, perhaps they're drinking more. How are we recording that? How are we understanding it? And how are we therefore planning our services for the future needs of, of those populations? Or better yet, stepping in there and, and helping them stop those behaviours now so they don't need care in the future and that's really what value-based healthcare is about. It's about ensuring that the resources we've got are used in the best way to get the best outcomes and that isn't always just to treat what's in front of you it's too late by the time someone's presented it generally can be too late you know if we've got people being diagnosed with cancer in the ed then we're not doing value based healthcare very well are we so i think there's there's a real focus on trying to understand how we can change our investments now without destabilising the delivery. And this, of course, is the balance that people have got because they spend all the money that's invested through government budgets gets spent on dealing with with what's in front of them. It's very hard to pull that out and say, actually, we need to, to move that money over here to the left and invest in early interventions so that we don't spend later on. So that's going to take time and and thought to balance those things off. One of the things we can do is is look at the data and see who's missing. So if we've got a, a data set of activity by geography. We, we can look at that and really go down into the depths of it if we use all these triangulated data sets that give us the demographics, that give us the education and the yeah. other social factors. We can drill into that data and make sure that we have got proportional representation, if you will, of the patients we'd expect to see. And that helps us identify where we're um, not delivering care to specific groups or if there's underserved populations. It helps identify where those health inequalities are. We've all had the stories that men are notoriously bad at going to to the doctor you know and it's a generalization but it must be based on something and you know how we're we going to find those other cohorts that we might make generalizations about so it, there's, a, there's a lot in value based healthcare it's, it's again it's a really broad subject but for me my my personal view is how do i maximize the use of the resources it, again as a cfo particularly through covid the constraint wasn't money governments were throwing money at at services left right and center the constraint was people resources no matter how much money you throw at it you can't buy more nursing or more doctors if they're not available you need to use those resources to best effect there were only so many ventilators and okay people got off and and made lots more but if you've only got so many you need to use them to best effect and you know you need to make sure that you you are really thinking through the pathways that enable you to get the most value for the most people out of what you've got
2: I think you know you make some really interesting points there Tracy and we often have these kind of discussions don't we and, and I always find it really enjoyable I think one of the things that jumped into my head when you were talking about value-based healthcare and, and with your question Pete is I think the 45 year old who hasn't seen a doctor for 10 years is, is, is a great example of how value-based healthcare is actually far more than just about the healthcare systems because the answer to the 45 year old is will make them more active make them make better kind of life choices I yeah. suppose it but that's not something that's within the gift of clinicians yeah. and you get. To a really interesting conversation there around personal responsibility versus nanny statism and and, and where do we fall in that line. But I think one of the things we'll find in population health management is it'll go far beyond healthcare. So the data sets that the healthcare systems are are, are collecting triangulated with some of these other sources that Tracy's talking about, I think will then be used by city planners and people who are deciding on justice systems and and, and social care systems. These physical and non-physical institutions that we build and that we base our communities on or play their part so I think you know, sticking with Tracy's example of of someone who's not quite active enough there's a big conversation going on in in America at the moment about walkable cities for example and the infrastructure that they've the physical environment that they've constructed has had these knock on implications on the health of, of the population that only now it's it being seen to be adverse or to many people it's being adverse from a health from a health point of view whereas you know the kind of communities that i've seen on my trips to australia for example and obviously things like climate play a part but very walkable lots of community kind of hubs where people can stay within their own local community and get from a to b lots of public parks places to run you, you, you're giving people the best chance of being healthy and, and active and on the population level which is that's the clues in the name they will then fall out to on average better outcomes for people so you know as I say I think that's where uh, the population health is going to touch on value-based healthcare it's all of the stuff that Tracy said absolutely uh, uh, and more you know beyond the health sector as well.
0: The
1: quote that we came up with at the um, discussion we had last week is happiness is a health outcome
0: Absolutely, we quite I liked, liked that. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna put that on a T-shirt and steal it, I think. But uh, and I will put, put, <laughs> put it put a quote underneath. But I, I I've learned so much already about population health, and I'm I'm fascinated by the concept of you know the actual healthcare component or the medical stuff only being you know like 20 of of the the overall picture. And so to bring it back to you know some of the tools and capabilities from from Civica's side. So that's why health is one of those business units, and there are different aspects of your focus and then pulling all those bits and pieces together with your different tool sets, is that kind of how it all comes together to give that bigger picture view from a public health side?
2: Yeah, from a technology point of view, I think that we touched on it at the very beginning, we're in a really exciting moment in time where I think there's a couple of things that are allowing this transformational change. I think one of them is just the advent of cloud processing and, and the extra capacity that that gives these systems and tools. We're now able to meaningfully manage and investigate absolutely enormously data sets and it gives us the ability to retain the granularity which is where the value is but also still be able to kind of look for themes and commonalities across that data another one of our little phrases that we like is we, you can use that then to get the, a bird's eye to worm's eye view all from the same tool or from the same source so I think that that's it and obviously the, the cloud processing is continuing with new kind of tools come on board such as data bricks and things like that that will allow for even faster processing so that that's one of the fundamental capabilities and then I think also AI is going to play a huge part of this, as as it will in many other pursuits, as, you know, which, which I don't think is a controversial thing to say. The, the, the way in which AI is, is going to be helpful in a population health management point of view, though, is being able to just exponentially reduce the amount of time it takes to identify insights in that enormous data. It's going to find the, the needles in the haystacks mm-hmm. so quickly that then we can use data, we can use contemporaneous data to, to base our decisions on. And, and that increase in collecting the data to be able to use that data to make a decision means that you know, as, as I say, it, it, it's just going to revolutionise how, how we can use data to, to base really high level strategic decisions. I think p- part of the criticism of systems in, in the past, and, you know, you, you use the phrase, people complain about feeding the beast, is often by the time those systems were able to produce any kind of outcome, the data was one, two, three, five years old and the world has moved on. You know, as I say, the, the, those, the two adv- advents of those, uh, cloud processing and AI, is it, it's going to break that link and it's going to make the, these data sets um, usable in, in in some sort of approach in real time
0: something that the last couple of years has definitely proven is that there's there's no time to waste for insights at any time you know it's a, yeah, exactly. a couple of days and there's a, a, let alone a couple of years and it's and it's not as helpful yeah. Be-
2: meaningless yeah.
1: yeah and and I think the other thing for me is the clinical engagement that comes from these um, advances in technology of course we wouldn't be able to calculate the data without ai and cloud but the reporting That we can now do is the systems that sit on top of this data Mm. that enable you to at the click of a mouse change the view and be able to really quickly sort of draw the insights required out for the stakeholder group that's interested. Those reporting tools are just adding so much value to that data. We can use them to really portray graphically and for the accountants in the room in, in tabular form but be able to push that information through in ways that are meaningful to people in the areas that they're interested in, literally at at the click of a button because we can hold so much data within the, the reporting tool that they can drill through this bird's eye to worm's eye view. I mean, I, I never tire of, of sitting and watching the. We've got a, ge- a geographical picture of an area of where services are provided and where the service users are located, two little maps side by side. And as you drill through, you see the bubbles on those maps changing. And you're going, Well, why are providing services in, in this location when all of my patients live over there? And being able to do those visual uh analytics enables the clinicians to really understand quickly and grasp the messages quickly and enables everyone to act on things and i think that's that's something that certainly perhaps who's someone who's less technical than, than John that from my side is is a real bonus from from the, the changes we've seen.
2: I think, I think that's a really good point that, that Tracy raises there, though, because, and a really important one, it allows us to speak the language of the people who can actually enact change on the ground. So managers and leaders can decide on new pathways, they can decide on new policies, but the people who actually drive what happens to a patient and the lived experience of a patient are the clinicians that they see from day to day. So if we're going to use these data sets to make meaningful change in systems, to make transformational change, we need to be able to Win over the clinicians, and you know, in, in in my world, from a costing point of view, which has been my background, the challenge is I've always spoken in dollars and cents, and that's not a language that clinicians un- understand or, or want to understand. However, the data that I produce those dollar and cents insights on is clinical data, and what these tools allow us to do is to really convert those insights in, into something which is still that the metric of it is still something that's meaningful from a clinical point of view. So it'll be about readmissions, it'll be about lengths of stay, it'll be about theatre durations, it'll be about you know, patient outcomes. And, and I think that's going to be a really important change as well. We, and it comes back to that point of not having to summarise the data under some other metric. We can keep the data set in their original form, but still draw out these really useful insights from them.
0: I mean, super important in a healthcare setting. It's it's where most of the tension lies is, you know, that tension between the financial side versus the clinical side, what's best for the business versus the patient. To be able to have a single metric, to be able to look at and and, and strive towards, That's it can't be underestimated. And I think we've touched on a lot of this already, but I'm just thinking because we've got locally the perspective from from an Australian side of things. And John, you talked about the opportunity that exists for Australia to really be an early adopter are really capitalising some of these things and lead the trend essentially when it comes to utilising some of these tools for population health data insights. But I'd love to know from a global perspective as well, when it comes to population health data, what's happening in the rest of the world that Australia should be watching? Are there particular trends? Are there particular things that we could learn? Or the other way around, perhaps there's things that Australia are doing that the other parts of the world could could also learn from as well.
1: So I think Population health intelligence is is quite new and I think America has been doing a a bit in this space and there are some tools and techniques that they've they've been uh, using but they don't have a national system in the same way as other countries do. So I think uh, places like the UK and Australia are setting the agenda to some Degree, And that's being driven in some ways by the, the software providers, because we're, we're leading the, the direction on, well, we think we can do this with the data. Does that fill a need? And, and it, it's very conversational. You know, I, I don't think we've reached a point of saying this is what population health management will be in the future. I think it's well understood we haven't had the tools to be able to to deliver. So I think it's really exciting now to be in this space and creating the, the environment that that will be built on in the future, because we've got that opportunity to start with with a clean slate, if you will. I don't want to be dismissive. There's a lot of narrative that people are putting out, but they're not actually necessarily doing anything. Yep. They're all talking about it yes. and they all know it's the thing to do, but they're not quite sure how to do it for the most part and that's not from want of ideas or anything it's just how you know how do you put that idea into action and that's why I say I think a lot of it is being driven by the technology companies partnering those very early adopter forward thinkers and and trying to come up with some solutions and and certainly I think that that's where Australia can benefit. For me post-COVID this is a really important thing so maybe the population health agenda would have started more strongly a couple of years ago but COVID came along so probably been fair to say it's been backburned a little bit. You know, everyone's had their focus elsewhere for the last two years. But actually, the fact of COVID has meant that it's probably more important than it's ever been, because we've got more people on waiting lists, we've got a, a lot more issues, we've got more financial constraints. So all the pressures have been compounded by COVID. And yet COVID created a, a gap in anyone actually moving the agenda forward. So I think this is a, a really important time to, to do that. You know, internationally, I think everyone is struggling with the same problems that they've all got too few resources health costs a lot of money as a proportion of gdp you've got aging populations and we want to make sure that those if they, if we're keeping people alive longer that we're keeping them alive healthy years rather than unhealthy years you know we need a bit more equity about life expectancy that there's such a wide disparity in life expectancy in the uk you know Maybe ten years, depending on when you where you were born. And that can be within quite a small geography. We talk about the worst being there's the, uh, up in Scotland is one of the worst places and there's a borough in London is one of the best. But even within that small borough in London where the average life expectancy is 10 years higher than it is in, in the borough in Scotland, that there's pockets within that of, of really deprived areas where the life expectancy is also low. So it's getting re- really into the micro and this ability to use that data to not gloss over those little pockets because if, you, if you're not careful... It's really easy to miss those things because you're taking averages. And and the beauty of AI is it enables you to take averages but also look at outliers and focus on those as well. So some really exciting things and I'm just pleased to be in a space where we're, we're setting the agenda.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I, I I you know I agree with everything Tracy was just saying there. I think in terms of what what we're seeing in other places as well, though, I think people are kind of, they're aware of population health data, uh, what I can tell them. But I think at the moment, the experiments are being had in on the slightly more kind of low hanging fruit from like a political difficulty point of view. So you know, you know you're seeing the the, the rollouts of cycle lanes, for example, you know as a let's get people more active, and, and then yes. you can have uh, you can have like Tracy says, more more years of, of, of healthy life rather than just more years of life. But that that's an easy thing, that's an easy thing to do. I think when it comes to healthcare systems, the thing that I think which which isn't really happening just yet, but I think is is, is going to start to happen, and and it'll happen probably in kind of a bit of a, a haphazard way globally, is the way our healthcare systems are designed are going to have to start having some very difficult choices made around how we structure what we prioritise how how we achieve that uh, equity that that, that Tracy's referred to and I think you'll probably see places where those kind of political decisions are easier to push through are probably going to be the places that adopt that first they're then going to become the experimental cases for whether that worked or not because I think people know that having these Enormous hospitals where people can sit. Uh, the kind of the it, it's not a kind of a, a nice term, but in the UK people use the say bed blockers or the hotel costs of a hospital. People are just located on those beds, not necessarily in much clinical care, but with a very high kind of nurse to patient ratios because that's what they're built for. We've invested a lot in that infrastructure. How do you undo that investment? How do you tell a community we're going to we're going to we're going to change the hospital? We're going to change the approach. We're going to have a smaller hospital. What does that mean? It's all very difficult, and I think the answers aren't really known just yet. As I say, I think you're going to see places where maybe the political capital of the people in charge is particularly high at a given moment and they'll push it through like like labour did in the uk in the late 90s early noughties they they revolutionized the healthcare system because they won with a landslide that that's very difficult and you you guys over there are about to go through an election i know it's kind of a bit bit up in the air isn't it it's it's 50 50 that's not an environment that's conducive to to system redesign and and that sort of thing so i think that's what i'd look out for i I don't think the potential uses are, are unknown i think that what what the population health data is pointing too, is we're going to have to make some difficult choices about our healthcare systems. Like Tracy says, it's so expensive to deliver healthcare in the way we do now. We have to find new and better ways of doing it and that's going to be, you know, the data is going to be a, a, a really big part of that. I think just bringing it back to population health, the way I like to, to, to think of it is through now we've had these systems that just provide these static data sets that aren't really joined up. So it's, it's almost like we were looking at our data and it was in black and white. What population health data allows us to do is by joining in these completely different disparate data sets around educational attainments around lifestyle around wealth around the physical environment that you live in it's like going from black and white to technicolor you know it, it colors in the data in a way that that gives us so much more insight and knowledge to what it's telling us but then you've got to act on it and and it's as always it's the acting on it that's the really hard part
1: can I just add to that, because I think this is such an important point that that John's made there about these difficult decisions. Something else that COVID has done is it's changed the public's behaviour and they will drive this change through their government voting choices, whatever else, and, and by lobbying their local MPs. You know, COVID let the genie out of the bottle. Two years ago, no companies were investing in people working from home. The technology was there, but people weren't doing it. They had to do it that investment has been made and and people have almost changed their their interactions with with life literally you know i don't commute to work every day anymore and i go to the gym and or uh, you know i've got a much more flexible working pattern Uh, i can fit different things in and i'm prioritizing differently pretty much everyone in the world know somebody that that's died of covid and not necessarily someone who was old and frail they probably know someone who it was a surprise and a shock and that brings their own mortality into focus and makes them reevaluate life and i, I just don't think that people are going to go back to the way they were they're going to want the health system to change and adapt to to this new post-covid world
0: absolutely such a such a reflective conversation and so much to, to get into and and such a great way to kind of summarize where we're at in terms of population health data, the opportunity that exists, the tools that can give the insights to really make informed decisions, not just at a large scale, but right down to the to the granular, uh, as you mentioned. Just to cl- to close out the conversation, I'm really keen just to understand, you know, from Civica's point of view, particularly in Australia as well, Judith, what are the kind of things you're looking forward to seeing come out of Civica over the next six, twelve, twenty-four, 24 or what are the focus and priorities? for you here locally, and then also we can close out with Tracy and, and John from a more global perspective as well.
3: So a really strong focus for us is this precise thing that we're talking about is population, health and costing. So it's a very hot topic. There's certainly a lot of opportunity in Australia that we can see. We've already seen that there's a massive amount of data already available, and uh, I think John would attest to that, that it's a very some very sophisticated costing that already occurs so we're certainly not the, the trailblazers in that space, but we, we really do feel that we are in terms of population health. So that that's where we'll be, I think, focusing in the next, certainly in this space, in the next 12 to 24 months.
2: Yeah, I think just to add to that, what Judith was saying there, um, you know, I think population health has been quite fragmented, as we've talked about. But I think what we're looking to do with our systems that Tracy mentioned was add, add a more central capability where a lot of these different initiatives can be based from, that, that, that central repository of all of these different data sets. And how they how they interact. And I think costing is one of the data sets that I think is going to be really important in that mix because it, it it's incredibly granular and detail from a, um, a data point of view and, and we mentioned it earlier that it has that single currency running through it as well so it makes analysis a, a, a lot more easy to do on that data set so I think it, it's going to sit within the population health space quite neatly in Australia in particular but, but in order to do that you therefore need to have a well-established costing data set to be able to trust the, what it's telling you to be able to have a, a regime in place where it's collected on a regular basis and I think that's one of the things where Australia is, um, has been a world leader in that in patient level costing And collecting that data on a regular basis, having very high standards for how those data sets are are pulled together and how those models are built. And it's a very mature market in terms of that activity. One of the reasons why we think it's somewhere that is a a good space for us, as Judith says, to be looking to offer these solutions that we've got.
1: Just from me, I think I'm an accountant by background. So of course, I I like to count things. But actually, I like to count resources rather than money, because I've learned in hospitals, that's the most important thing to count. But What we don't do, either in the UK or as far as I'm aware in Australia, is really think about whole government accounting. We talk about what we spend as an organisation or maybe a a group of organisations, but we don't think about what is the total cost of all the services that we're delivering to our community. And actually, if we're bouncing people between services, are we costing more? and delivering less and fragmenting those resources badly. So for me, one of the key functions of population health is it's a our tool is a platform where we can bring all those different things together and understand what as a community we're spending on our population in, in a range of different ways, you know, health, social care, education, etc. And really then go, well, what value are we driving from that? And is it the right investment in the right place to get the best outcomes? And typically we bash people between health and social care or between a GP and, an, and a hospital. How many times a patient gets bounced back between the two? Whereas if we just solved the problem, we wouldn't be bouncing them around and actually it would cost less. But everybody is trying to contain their own financial position and avoid costs for themselves rather than thinking holistic. And that to me is where population health really can change the,
0: the, the dial something for us to work towards absolutely solve a lot of problems i've loved this conversation judith john tracy i'll put some details in the show notes of this episode there'll be an article on our website for people to follow along check out some of the glossary terms in our website that were referenced in this conversation today and they can check out more information about civica through your directory listing on our website as well i really appreciate you making the time in totally different time zones all three of you thank you so much for joining thank you Thanks,